Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment. So um, Amy has read this story already. Um, and so before I read it again, maybe you could just flip to the picture. I don't know if that would probably be helpful if there's something to focus on. Um, before we read it again, so essentially this is very simple today. Um, I'm going to sort of slowly uh, go through the story and point out a few things you maybe never noticed before. Uh, and then I'll invite you to kind of be in that space. Uh, and then Ari's going to come up and lead us in like a reflection to kind of go another level deeper into the story. So we've done uh, a bit of reflection, and now we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit for a few minutes, and then we'll go back into kind of meditating. But um, I think it's very, very important to do this. Um, and in Lent right now, we're just moving very slowly through the last sort of chapter and a half of Mark. Um, we are on the night he was betrayed. And uh, this story, where we're at right now, with Judas kind of betraying Jesus with a kiss in the garden, this scene, um, it's a very, very famous scene. You've all heard this. You've heard this story many times. Uh, even if you're not a, a regular churchgoer or you haven't you know, grown up Christian, you know this story. This is a classic, cultural, iconic kind of trope. Um, Jesus uh, is betrayed with a kiss. You've seen it in art. You've read the poems. You've read uh, probably references to it in novels and other uh, pieces of literature. You've seen references to this in famous scenes. I think there's a Lady Gaga song called Judas. Uh, this story has shaped us. Um, this very famous story has, has uh, shaped uh, the Christian imagination, um, but the Western imagination as a whole. Uh, and so it would be easy to kind of be like, yes, I know the story. Like, I've already formed my thoughts on it and move on. Um, but what I really would love to do uh, tonight is for us to kind of hit pause on the scene uh, and notice things we've never noticed before. So before we can do that, here's what we have to do. We have to pretend that we only have Mark's gospel. So there are four gospels in our Bible. Uh, and we are going to imagine right now that this is the only version of the story we have. Only Mark. And it's important to do that every once in a while because we know that uh, Mark's gospel was probably written first. Almost certainly written first. So this is the first version of the story. Now, yes, you have to imagine you've never read Matthew, John, or Luke. And there are four different uh, gospels in our Bible. And I like to believe that the Holy Spirit did not make a mistake. So we ought to kind of resist the urge to harmonize the four stories together. 
and let each account speak and do its work. And we will hopefully notice uh, what Mark is doing. So you'll kind of spend some time with Mark here as well in this meditation, which is kind of cool. Um, and we'll discover, I believe, that Mark wants to challenge us and unsettle us. So before we uh, slowly read the story together, I want you to notice a few things. First, notice that uh, no one, as far as we know, knows about Judas's plan to betray Jesus. This hasn't been announced. Like, no one knows that. The disciples aren't like, hey, watch out if someone tries to kiss Jesus. Like, that, there, there's no record of, of Judas telling anyone that. There's no record of sort of Judas making that arrangement. It's just something Mark tells you, the reader. As far as we know, no one in the story knows about it. So um, from the perspective of the men with Jesus, uh, Judas simply approaches Jesus with a smile and greets him with the culturally appropriate way of greeting a close relation, a way that Jesus would have been greeted by Judas probably many, many times. He greets him with a kiss, and suddenly the men with Judas, or the men following behind Judas, are arresting Jesus. You'll notice the text implies, perhaps, it's ambiguous, that Judas, um, or I guess the, the text begs the question, raises the question, does Judas run away with the disciples? Or does Judas stay with the crowd arresting Jesus? Uh, we're, we're not, it's not clear. You will notice there's an invisible character in this story, uh, the slave. There's a slave in this story. And I want you to think about that. Uh, an enslaved person is here with the mob. So consider what that means. Um, an enslaved person would not have any choice in the matter. He didn't choose. He wasn't like, yeah, we should go. We should go arrest Jesus. This is going to be awesome. Um, he has no choice. He has no name. He has no agency, no power. And yet it is this character, the enslaved person, uh, that is violently attacked. Think about the wound. Um, so there's obviously a, a sword of some kind swung at his head. Um, and his ear is cut off. So, so like you're, you're hit in the head with a knife. That, that sounds terrifying. And if you think about the ancient world, this injury, like I don't know. I've heard this my whole life. And then, you know, someone cut off the servant's ear. Moving on. Like that was a kid's story, like four-year-old appropriate. That was just a normal story. Ah, cutting off ears. Um, but when I really kind of linger in the story, I'm like, that's a violent assault. That would be excruciatingly painful, and in the ancient world, quite likely, quite possibly, a fatal wound. He dies that night, perhaps. We don't know. Okay, um, he's attacked. We don't know why one of Jesus' followers has a sword. Seems strange, given all of Jesus' teachings about nonviolence and non-resistance. They've just enjoyed a sacred Passover meal together and are simply enjoying a leisurely evening walk, as far as the disciples know. Uh, with a short visit to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives to pray. Just take a pause. But someone has a sword. And that person is not named in this story. Some part of you is like, it's Peter though, right? We don't know. We don't know. In Mark's account, we don't know. Um, and I want you to notice, in Mark's account, Jesus does not heal the slave. There's no healing in Mark's account. We know nothing about Jesus' reaction to the violent attack, and we don't know if Jesus even noticed it. Uh, we will notice the followers of Jesus all flee from the scene uh, seen as, as soon as he's arrested. But I want you to notice that we don't know why. Uh, maybe they run because suddenly there's blood and swords and they don't want to be associated with the violence. Maybe they run away because they're just afraid of being arrested. Um, maybe they're just frustrated because it's another surprise on this journey with Jesus that is just confusing and scary and maybe they just run away to go, I don't know, back to the house they had Passover. Finally, before we slowly read the story over again, 
I want you to notice this strange young man in the story who plays uh, this significant role. This is, Mark's account emphasizes this, and it's very strange. Um, this man uh, who runs away naked. They say he's a young man. How young? 12? 35? What's young in that ancient, right? What's young? A young man. Um, we are told that, uh, so, so you'll see as we go through the text here in a minute, that he doesn't, he sort of seems to be the last one there. So Jesus has been arrested, all the disciples flee. And then there was this young man wearing nothing but a loincloth. And when they went to arrest him, like, so they put their hands on him, he flees. So he's sort of the last one. So there's this, like, lingering man. Um, you'll notice, we're going to read it slowly, so you might not. But if you think about it, these events would likely take place very quickly. This entire scene, if you think about it, is probably 30, 60 seconds. Circumstance. You're praying. Jesus has just sort of said, stay awake. Why are you sleeping? Can't you stay awake one hour? Okay, let's go. And all of a sudden, Judas approaches. There's a kiss. Uh, Jesus is being grabbed at. All of a sudden, there's you, you hear someone scream out in pain, and then everyone runs away, and then there's a naked guy, last thing in your eye. It's over. Right? Like, it's so fast. This would happen so quickly. So I don't know if you have any memories. I, I consider telling a story here, but I know I would take way too long. Um, if you have any memories of a situation where it happened so fast, like you can look at it, look in hindsight, and be like, oh, I really regret reacting that way. I regret have like, it was so unfortunate. Like you can just kind of look back after the fact and see all of the decisions people made in a fast-paced kind of fearful hurry. Oh, this happened so fast. Like all of a sudden, you're cutting off, like, like there's swords and there's blood and there's arrest and there's nudity and it's just a flash. Um, and there's no pause. Like, like there's no one talks to each other, like there's no pause, um, so it moves quickly. So when, you, when we read Mark 14, 43 to 52 right now, um, I want you to imagine the scene in your mind. I want you to try to notice all of the details. And like we reflected on last week, I want you to stay awake and remain present to the story and present to the way you feel reading the story. So uh, if you skip forward a bit, we have the text on the screen um, just over the course of like three or four slides. Yes, OK. So follow with me. I'll read slowly, even though it would have happened quickly. Immediately, that's Mark's favorite word. He uses it all the time in his book. Immediately. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. And with him, there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So arguably, no Roman centurions, no Romans. These are just the religious leaders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So remember, Jesus is not from Jerusalem. These people don't know what he looks like. Next slide. Oh, nope, that's it. So when he came, he went up to him, and at once, that in Greek is the word immediately again, immediately, and said, Rabbi, which means teacher. It would just been a way of saying, like, person that I know and love. Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Now keep in mind, he's saying this after there's blood on the ground and someone crying out in pain. The optics aren't good. 
day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. Now, if they don't know what he looks like and Jesus has to kiss him, maybe he's calling them out for not going to the worship services. I don't know. But, uh, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Which I think is an, an interesting way of saying this does not make sense. Um, why are you doing this? I guess it's to, to fulfill scriptures. All of them deserted him and fled. All of them. A certain young man was following him. So you have this kind of think of the direction. A crowd fleeing away. But in the next sentence, there's a man following behind. A certain young man was following him. Um, or perhaps it means there was a certain young man among the followers. It's not clear. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. The end of the scene. So I just want to um, notice a few, talk about a few of these details with you and see what we see. First of all, I think it is very profound uh, that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. This would have been a very common form of greeting someone, and it's highly unlikely that Jesus would have found the kiss itself to be peculiar after the scene. Um, however, as you all can imagine, the kiss of betrayal uh, became sort of a famous, uh, a famous idea, even in the earliest days of the early church. Betrayal and a kiss just hadn't been together in people's imagination before, but suddenly it was like they were you know, connected. And so think of how the early church would have reflected on this like kiss of betrayal. You can imagine in a, in a culture where you greet each other with a kiss all the time, how easy it would be like, all right, we're not going to greet each other with a kiss anymore because we're all going to think about this horrible scene. But did you know? Maybe not. Comes up handy in some of the arguments I have in my personal life on the internet, but that's my thing, not yours. Did you know that five times in Paul's writing, he commands the believers to greet each other with a holy kiss? Five times. It's an imperative. The scriptures are clear. <laughs> the command is there five times, and it's in the imperative that you must greet each other with a kiss. And it seems that Paul says it as if, like, there's concern that they might not do that. Like, it's important that you make an effort. Like, don't forget this very important thing to greet each other with a holy kiss. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around what that would be like when someone you love and you knew and you followed um, was betrayed with a kiss, like this kind of famous scene. And Paul's like, don't forget, that's a very important thing. Um, and so I'm just kind of blown away a little bit by how a common greeting could uh, become a holy acknowledgement of one's fear of being betrayed as a way of saying hello, it's good to see you. To a friend, to a Christian sibling who walks with you towards Jesus who stands on the margins and in places of pain. To greet each other. How does Mark know that Judas signaled that he betrayed Jesus with a kiss? Like Mark knows this information and then Mark tells it to us. But we don't know how Mark got it. Um, the guards knew. So maybe we're meant to believe that like the guards maybe became Christians later. And they were like, oh, he told us he would do it with a kiss. You would not believe it. It was his idea. Like maybe there was a conversation like that, right? Um, but perhaps... Um, we don't know anything really about what happened to Judas after this, especially in Luke's, uh, Mark's gospel. In other accounts, we know that he dies. Um, but the fact that Mark knows about this, and then we get to know about it, suggests perhaps um, that Judas told them that there's an exchange between Judas and the disciples before Judas' death. But he told them. Maybe he initiated the confession. Maybe he's like, you guys, trust me, it wasn't just a betrayal. I literally set it up with a kiss. Perhaps there's this hint of a pause, a moment between Judas and the disciples where an attempt at dialogue was made. We don't know. We wonder. I think Mark invites us to wonder. And speaking of wonder, finally, who is the slave in the story? 
Um, it's, a, it's such a powerful image. It's such a powerful juxtaposition, um, the slave of a high priest. Um, this enslaved person has no name, no agency. He's no one. He's not chosen to be there on this night. He's simply obeying commands. He goes where he is told, and he would arguably stand silent until spoken to. He is invisible in the story, invisible in society. If you never noticed that there was a slave whose ear was cut off, he was invisible even to you, the reader. And so um, he's simply obeying commands. He has no voice, no name. And now he's on the ground, bleeding from his head in excruciating pain. He did nothing to deserve this punishment. He's an innocent bystander. Uh, in this scene, he is among, at least, the least of all people. And I think it's incredible. I mentioned this kind of a second ago, that it is the, a slave and a slave of the high priest. Um, think about this. What a deeply Christian paradox, a, a deeply Christian juxtaposition. We uh, in Scripture know that Jesus is our high priest. And I think sometimes we want to stand with the Jesus who is the high priest and not bleed with the Jesus that Mark says earlier in chapter 10, is the slave of all. It's interesting that the religious leaders in this scene um, have enough privilege and wealth and power that they have enslaved other humans. I'd also like to wonder, I'm nearing the end here, who brought the sword? Uh, in Greek, the word for sword, I know like my Western imagination thinks like, like a big sword which would be hard to conceal, especially if there's folks wearing nothing but linen cloths, like that would stand out. But the Greek word is that it's a tiny blade. It's like a dagger, so it could be concealed. It's not a sword. It could be like a, a curved blade or something small. So, so who brought it? There's a dagger or a blade. It's not a big sword, and it's concealable. So then it's like, did they all carry these? It was just like a pocket knife? Like, did they all carry small daggers? Did Jesus have a dagger? After all of Jesus' teachings about nonviolence and non-resistance, about turning the other cheek, about giving to all who ask, about loving one's enemies, about responding to evil with goodness, who brought the sword? Perhaps the first betrayal wasn't a kiss. Perhaps it was bringing a weapon to a peaceful gathering. I wonder what the watching world thinks when they watch a peaceful protest unfold on the global stage and how quickly their guilt for not being involved dissipates when the camera pans to the one example of violence on the fringe of the movement. How often do we judge the entire group based on the violence of one or a few? I grew up in the early 2000s. I saw this play out in the ways I was taught to fear Muslims, especially in airports. Um, I was taught to fear all people who appeared Muslim, according to what I was taught that Muslims looked like by people who were not Muslim. Um, I apparently, I guess, began racial profiling when I was 12 because no matter how many peaceful Muslim people there are in the world, at a very important time in my life, I saw the violent actions of a few, and that immediately was like dismissed the entire movement. It's all bad. Um, and so think about it. I wonder what the news in Jerusalem was the next day. Was it really that the innocent Jesus and his peaceful followers were praying innocently in a garden, uh, and, and then they were violently assaulted and arrested and brutalized, and they had done nothing to deserve it, and it was just horrible? Um, no, probably not. The news was probably that a violent mob was loitering in an oil olive grove. And when pulled over, they resisted arrest by almost killing the servant of the officer everyone loves and respects. Couldn't have done that. You wouldn't have got hurt if you hadn't done that. That was the news would have been, right? Jesus, like, what are the optics? This is a violent gang, a violent mob. Like, as soon as the, the officers approached, there was bloodshed and a weapon. And if you think about it, because you know Mark very well, because we're all reading through Mark right now, um, Jesus performed no miracles in Jerusalem in Mark's account. The people here have never seen him do a miracle. From, from Palm Sunday 
a week earlier, he's not healed anyone. Um, so the only thing the religious leaders in Jerusalem know about Jesus by firsthand experience is that he speaks critically against the temple. He speaks critically against the authorities. He stirs the pot, and now they know he travels at night with an armed gang. Jesus would appear with evidence to represent violence and insurrection. And to make things worse, the disciples flee. You can't flee the crime scene and not look a little guilty, right? They flee the scene. Um, They flee the scene, um, and, and your guilt is kind of assumed. So then we're left to wonder, did the disciples flee because they know they were doing something wrong? Um, That's how it would appear to everybody else. Considering that they aren't from Jerusalem, they're only there for the Passover, where do they go? These are all questions that this text draws for me. Um, And then finally, this young man, the young man who runs naked, I can't imagine that hasn't impacted you a little bit in this reflection to wonder who that is and what Mark is doing by including him in the story. Um, There's a young man who flees naked from the scene, presumably the last one to abandon Jesus. This is a very strange detail to include in a very short story. A naked man fleeing for his life into the night. Um, The Old Testament scholar in me, maybe you'll track this, maybe not, but just allow me. I think of the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Do you remember? Potiphar's wife tries to assault Joseph. And Joseph flees from her, but um, uh, she grabs his cloak and he flees away. This young man um, kind of fleeing from, and then he's falsely accused with the cloak. So I'm like, is Mark trying to evoke images of Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Because the language there is very similar. Um, Or is this naked man um, just there for the entire evening in his underwear? Like, maybe that was a normal thing. Maybe that was just like, you know, we had a special meal and we're we're dressed comfortably. I don't know. Like, that's not normal in my culture. So I'm like, who's this guy? Why is he naked? Is Is it bad? Is it good? And I was thinking, perhaps there was a baptism. We know that the early church baptized in the nude. Maybe there's a baptism. How profound, how poetic, what a beautiful thought. A baptism in Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed, and this was the guy about to be baptized. And he's lingering like, am I still going to get baptized? And then they go to arrest him, and he runs naked. Not baptized, but yet somehow changed. Maybe it was a baptism. Um, We don't know, but what a beautiful thought. Perhaps his nudity is meant to evoke images of shame, like it's foretelling the shame that Jesus is about to endure. Um, because we know that uh, Jesus is about to be crucified and that all crucified uh, men were crucified naked. Um, the art in the Western world does not depict that. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Like, you go to a museum in Europe, there's, like, a lot of male nudity, but never Jesus. <laughs> um, but we know that he was crucified naked, and we know that was a way of shaming the, the person being crucified. Jesus' naked and shamed body would have been wrapped in graves clothes, and then, if you think about it, when Jesus rose up on the third day, he would have risen naked, because when the people see the empty tomb, his grave clothes are there. Naked and triumphant over shame. Naked like a newborn baby on the first day of the new creation. So I wonder, are there any theological implications for being naked in a garden on the night before the death of Jesus? When his death tears the divide between the Garden of Eden, where we were once naked and unashamed, and the rest of the wounded world. Who is the young man on the night of the mob, the night the mob tried to grab him? Did he run away naked and ashamed? Or did he run away naked and unashamed? knowing that tonight's the night for rebirth. Um, a cool little detail about Mark. I'm thinking directly of Eric Reynolds right now, because in my mind we have a shared love of Mark. A very unique thing about Mark's gospel is a few chapters later, when Jesus is uh, risen from the dead, who, who we don't see in Mark, um, when Mary gets to the tomb, um, it's not an angel there that tells her that he's risen. It's a young man. It's a young man in freshly cleaned clothes. The language is the same, Um, as describing this young man fleeing, and some have wondered if they're not the same. Um, And even others have wondered if this 
the young man isn't Mark dragging himself into the story. Isn't it interesting, August is saying, that we have typically had a fairly straightforward picture of this event. If you're like me, you've most often heard this story and not noticed much ambiguity. You see bad guys and good guys, a non-resistant Jesus, childlike disciples, and an angry mob of haters led by the most despicable Judas Iscariot. It's overstated and clear. Why does our brain do that? What attracts us so strongly to simple narratives? Before Lent, if you remember, we spent six weeks reflecting on 1 Corinthians 13. We were challenged by the call to a love that is patient, kind, never arrogant or self-serving, keeping no record, not easily angered, never giving up and never failing. And interestingly, I've observed uh, that in both 1 Corinthians 13 and here in Mark 14, we're faced by the reality that we are rarely patient and kind. We are quick to judge, to react, to pick a side, to pick a favorite, to put ourselves or our own people first. We keep close track of the failures of others, and we give up on each other all the time. I wonder if somewhere in this scene, in this dark wood, if you could press pause on the fast-paced action and just wander in the night between the characters in the story. If you could approach Judas and touch if you could touch the bleeding ear of the slave. If you could wander and notice the expressions on their faces, what do you see? Is it fear? Is it rage? Or are they half asleep? Because if you recall, they were just sleeping while Jesus was praying by himself. Are they just confused and distressed? What does the mob look like? Are they sinister bad guys? Or respectful authority figures in your community uh, who are afraid because of the sword and the blood? Or do you see them as people who are just resolved to violence? Can you walk through and slowly, person by person, look with eyes of patience and kindness and curiosity? Can you forgive them? Can you at least grant that you don't know the full story? Can you linger to listen to what they're saying? Can you look with eyes of patience and kindness at Jesus on the night of his arrest when some part of you wants to say, why didn't you resist? Can you remain present to the discomfort of ambiguity and the space between curiosity and dread? And then, can you press pause again? The pause, the paused scene, until you're there frozen, wandering around thinking that you were in control. We pause the you. Suddenly you notice yourself noticing the characters in the story. Can you approach yourself and see your own face? One of, as one of the many faces in the story. Can you see fear on your own face? Frustration, sadness. Can you go nearer and look at your own self with eyes of patience and kindness and curiosity? Can you forgive yourself? Can you at least grant that you haven't fully remembered your own story? Can you linger and listen? And I ask, can you remember times in your life when you made bad choices in the heat of the moment that you thought were good at the time? Can you remember a time in your life when you didn't give the other person the benefit of the doubt? Can you forgive yourself? Can you forgive your neighbor? Can you see the God of the universe right there in the story with you? Right in the middle, being kissed by a friend, being arrested by strangers, being abandoned. Can you see him surrender to the space within the commotion? between the stimulus and the reaction. Can you see his face inviting us to pause and look around and notice with kindness and patience? 
to see your neighborhood through his eyes, through love's eyes, not putting ourselves immediately first or keeping track of how the other person fills the stereotype, not being easily angered or arrogant. Can we notice what we would notice if we believed in a love that never fails and never gives up and can endure all things? Let's pray, and then Ari will come and lead us for a moment. Holy Spirit, uh, we know you are within us. We know Christ is in our midst. And we know uh, you, God the Father, beyond us. And so we acknowledge uh, the way that we are in this story, and the God within us, in our midst, and beyond us, is holding us in this story together. So I ask that you illuminate your word to us, um, and that you illuminate your image in the face of the people sitting around us right now. I pray that you would help us to receive your forgiveness, to confess our need for it, and to see in our neighbor uh, a need to be forgiven, to be seen. And then finally, I pray that you bring us to the table where we would eat with you and with one another. We pray in the name of our wounded healer, Jesus our Messiah. Hello, folks. Uh, so we're going to do just that, kind of sit with our curiosity, sit with our confusion. Um, I was sort of going through this uh, over the last couple weeks, trying to figure out what I was going to talk about. Um, and I thought that this would be the perfect uh, scripture for me because I have a lot of strong feelings about this particular one, uh, being betrayed with a kiss. Uh, but that ended up being not great because all I could do was think about my hurt when I was going through it. All I could think about was um, the one thing that was hurting me so bad and I could just spiral deep, deeper and deeper and deeper into that pain. So I'm going to encourage us today to instead of doing what I have always done as like the recovering good little Christian, uh, and make conclusions about big passages, I'm going to encourage us to just ask questions. Um, last week, we really sat with our pain. This week, I would like to encourage us to sit with our confusion, and I would like that to start with me. So um, I'm going to read off some questions. Some of them are going to be a little bit angsty, but I would encourage you to let yourself wonder about them. Let other questions come up for you. Sit with the emotions that these questions bring up in you, and I will do the same. So if you would start with me, I would love for you to take it in. Let it out. Try to relax part of your body. You want to close your eyes. I encourage you to do so. Whatever puts you in as much relaxing uh, stance as you possibly can to let yourself really sink into this. Do you think Jesus saw Judas? What do you think he felt when he saw Judas approach him? Do you think Jesus knew that Jesus would come quietly? When Judas kissed Jesus, do you think Jesus leaned into it? Do you think he was comforted by it? 
Do you think Jesus kissed Judas back? What do you think Jesus saw in Judas's eyes when he leaned in and kissed him? What do you think the disciple who brought the sword with him was thinking? Do you think that this was a choice? Do you think he usually had a sword on him? Do you think he was excited? <laughs> Maybe he thought that it was some sort of, I, I don't know. Why, why do you think he brought a sword with him? Was the servant a threat? Why didn't the disciple cut off the ear of a high priest instead? What do you think the servant's name was? Do you think he had a family? Do you think that family was also slaves? Why do you think Mark chose not to show Jesus healing the servant? Why do you think Mark didn't show Jesus reprimanding the person who cut the servant's ears off? How tired do you think the disciples were? What do you think the disciples felt when they were fleeing? Where did they go? Do you think they went home? Do you think they talked to each other? What was the name of the young man with the linen garment? How old was he? Was he my age? Was he your age? Was he your kid's age? Why didn't he follow everybody else when they fled? Why do you think he was wearing just a linen garment? Do you think the person grabbing him tore off the linen garment? Or did it slip off of him? Where did he go? Who was his mom? Do you think she was worried about him? Who do you think you are in the text? Who do you think I am? I don't know. I would like you guys to sit with that. See if you have any other questions that come up. And then we'll go into communion. Thank you.